Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am still your host. Today, we have Stuart O'Neill. Stuart was raised in Melbourne, Australia, so he's got that awesome accent to listen to. And he's been mostly self-employed his whole life and has provided its fair share of highs and lows. Stuart's life story easily resonates with others. In the 1980s, Stuart became an Australian surf lifesaver. Saving lives is a passion that he still fulfills to this day. His desire to save lives now includes his book, Just One Reason. The Just One Reason Suicide Prevention Toolkit is the product of Stuart's out-of-the-box thinking and willingness to help others. Stuart takes pride in putting others first and bears his soul publicly about his personal battle with suicidal thoughts and depression. Throughout the book, Stuart reveals his own strategy for beating his inner demons and offers a powerful and very easy solution to a world problem that is getting worse, not better. I really loved this conversation because I felt like there were a lot of new relatable things that to talk about with regard to suicidal ideation. I know that there are people out there who think about suicide a lot and would like to not think about suicide as much or have a solution or toolkit that would stop those thoughts. And I know that a lot of people in recovery have dealt with this as well. So, you know, suicide is just this is seeking relief, right? It's just that need for relief. And it's the same as many of the other compulsions that we talk about, you know, where people who are seeking relief and suicide, suicidal ideation is really when we can't think of another way to find that relief, when just disappearing and ending it feels like that's the answer and that will provide the relief, right? It's the, it's the permanent solution to a temporary problem. And Stuart has some really amazing advice and he shares his experience coming from a home where there was a lot of mental illness and he still deals with his parents' mental illness to this day. And uh, I love that he talks about the stories of people around the world who have received his book, Just One Reason, and what their experiences were. It sounds like it's helped a ton of people and it's, uh, it's just a really incredible story and I hope that you enjoy it and please share this episode with someone you love. You never know who's struggling and there are a lot of of great insights into these thought patterns, especially as it relates to trauma. So without further ado, I give you Stuart O'Neill, episode 100. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Okay. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ashley. You're in Australia. What time is it there? It is 
8 a.m. here. Eight. <laughs> Nothing like waking up bright and early to talk about recovery. Fantastic time. <laughs> So I have, we are starting every episode in season three off with, uh, we're trying to get bad, your worst haircut pictures, but, but some people are doing childhood, but your picture, your worst haircut, I feel like might win season three. This is, this is the one that I got. This is amazing. Tell me about this. (laughs) In a second. (laughs) Oh my God, it is so good. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so um, we were uh, at home, my partner and I, <laughs> and we were doing silly things to each other, like with, with texters and writing on each other. And she uh, had a penis drawn on her and we had all sorts of different things done in a big black marking pen. Oh so, my gosh. so then um, the stakes got up. What do you call it? The, yeah. The stakes went up higher. So um, she decided that she'd try and shave a picture into my head, and uh, with some like a, a, like you know barbers electric clipper yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that so that all happened, and um, as it was progressing, it started to look pretty good. <laughs> so, so she was working off a photo, and um, and just copying the photo the whole time. Yeah. And so that was the outcome, but it, but it got worse. So as part of all of that, I had to then do um, a full lap inside the shopping centre. Oh yeah, and, and walk around with it on as well. So oh my god, <laughs> so funny. funny. She did such a good job with it. It was great. Yeah, yeah. The, so the picture I'll describe the picture. So it's I have a picture of your head is mostly shaved except for the outline of a man squatting. And pooping, two little poops, and this is this is shaved into your hair and made into an incredible design. I'm so impressed. <laughs> yeah, when that, so when, impressed. That, when that question came through, there could only be one photo. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Off. Yeah, because I don't have a whole lot of hair, and um, and I went to a sporting match uh, a couple of years ago, and I had my hair. I attempted to get my hair shaved into like the most famous player on our team, but. Um, which is a sort of a, it looked a bit like a raccoon, but I've got nothing on the top, so the back part was done, but nothing. It didn't really wasn't successful on the top because there's not a lot of hair there. <laughs> They're working with what you gotta, you know, go with what you're working with. Did uh, when you were, you did the lap around, were people? Uh, did people stop you? No, people got stopped. So no, so people didn't actually notice. But um, my partner so caring that she actually stopped people and pointed it out. So oh my god, I love yeah. it. <laughs> oh my god it sounds like you guys have a lot of fun that is so good yeah it was pretty so amazing it was pretty funny what was um what was done to each other with the, the haircut and, the, and yeah. the, the black marking pen it was very funny <laughs> oh that's so funny well if you're listening and not look go to instagram and check out this amazing haircut it is so good all right Stuart. so tell me you have an older brother is that right? Yes. yes. You have an correct. older, you have an older brother and yep. you grew up with both parents. Your dad, you, you, you said your dad was a bit of a gambler and, but it didn't have an effect on family finances. Tell me a little bit about that. How does that work? How does that work? Well, uh, he could afford to gamble apparently. And so he, he mostly, um, he mostly gambled on his own horses. 
but mm. you know, but they weren't five dollars each way. They were proper bets, big ones. And so none of the horses ever won. And um, <laughs> but he, he he just enjoyed the whole the, the sort of the gala of it all, putting a shirt and tie on and going to the right. track and being amongst everyone else that's got horses and and then hoping that payday is going to happen, but it never happened. It sounds like this was like a a big part of his life in terms of like oh, he owned horses or is that a is that a big thing i mean to own a racehorse seems like it would be a big part of your life you could make it that way if you wanted to so i guess that was his hobby outside of work and family time so the effect that i had more from that was that he chose to be with his horse more than his children so that was probably you know apart from knowing what was happening with the gambling and I've never really been into gambling ever since, but it's it's not for the reasons that other people don't like gambling. I don't like gambling because I got neglected as a kid that he'd rather get up at seven in the morning and go to the track and watch his horse warm up and do things mm. as opposed to come and watch me play a game of football. Right. Yeah. Right. And are yeah. you, do you have a relationship with him today? Uh, I have a very difficult relationship with my father today. It's um, I've been the parent to my father now for probably 30 to 35 years mm. and, and that continues to this day unfortunately so which I dislike a lot so there's a lot of yeah. things that go on there our relationship it's been built on just total acceptance in the end because I have um, a lot of external influences around me for a long time saying you should do this and you should do that and you should treat him like this and all those other bits and pieces and in the end I just had to accept that my dad's just a shit and he's still my dad and nothing's going to change and either accept him for how he is and just know that that's the case and he's never going to be how I'd really like my ideal dad to be. Like I meet so many people who have great dads and I'm like, oh, why can't mine be like him? So ultimately I just have to go, that's just what it is. They're the cards and that's that. But we don't see each other in person uh, very often. We communicate once every one to two weeks, but you know, for the best part of, I don't know, since ha for how long I can remember, actually, like I get a suicide call from him probably once to twice a month to this day that he's had enough and he can't go on and all those other bits and pieces. And I've probably had that now for 15, 20 years. Wow. I want to come back to that. Your mother had a really horrendous childhood. What does that mean? So my mum grew up in inner city Melbourne, and uh, she was raised as a Catholic. And in those days, back then, to the best of my knowledge, girls went to a convent school where they actually mm -hmm. lived. And um, so my mum, as, as far as I understand it, her first mum died when she was about two. And then so her father um, remarried or repartnered, and that person also died at some point, like maybe wow. five or ten years later. So she lost basically both of her mothers at a very, very early age. But her father um, was a, um, a champion boxer and, mm. um, and a big, fit, popular type person, pub, uh, like a publican type thing, but he was a pretty mean bastard too. So um, she was, I guess, the unpopular daughter. She had an older sister who became a police officer. So, in her, so she was, the older sister was sort of, you know, adored and, and, and whatnot. And my mum was like, I guess, the, the pretty younger one who didn't meet up to his expectations perhaps back in those days. So as in, in all, in through all of that, Ashley, um, 
I believe that it was his friends, but she was certainly um, sexually assaulted a number of times when she was in her teens. And my understanding is that it was his friends. And I don't know who. I never got to meet any of his friends. Like, I think my mum kept him away, kept me away from him as a grandfather pretty much my whole junior years. I think I met him three times before he died. And I would have been wow. maybe 10 or thereabouts when, when, when my grandfather passed away. So, but there's been no relationship. So with, with, with my mum, I've pretty much observed, you know, her whole, her whole of my life anyway, and that my mum's been a self-harmer for as long as I can remember. Right. So that was kind of where I was going with the background, um, that your, your, that's where I was going with your parents' background, because it really sets the stage for some of the stuff that I want to talk to you about with your book and with um, the mental health struggles that you have had. You grew up in a house where dad was, you know, there was neglect, right? And in, as you described it, and but it also sounds like he is has struggled with mental health things too, from your description. And then mom is self-harming. So did you see her self-harming? And never actually in the act, but certainly, certainly you could see the evidence of what had happened. So her, her most common thing was to burn herself with an iron. And so that'd be on her arms and then there'd be a reason why it accidentally happened. And then you'd see really awful cuts on her legs, like on her, below her knee and stuff. And then she'd walked into a table or whatever the case was, but you just know that they couldn't possibly be that. <clears throat> and the most recent one was probably inside the last 12 months and now that she's older like you know it looks it looks even worse on um the 77 year old's leg with their skin's not so good and it's like oh gosh you just you just know that she's still suffering yeah yeah that's when did you as a kid when did you start to realize that you know she didn't walk into something or like it wasn't and i'm sure the first couple times you thought it was you know you went along with that when did that shift probably um in my 30s if I had to try and pick a, a time okay, period. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So not, but, not as a kid though. No, not as a kid, no. No, not as a kid. But I did watch, you know, I look at back I look at back on things now and I can see things that felt normal at the time. That there's a thing medically that's called um I don't know if you've ever heard of them in America, but it's called a Ford pill. And it's like a little a little yellow tube sort of oh, there you go. Just a little yellow tube, not that so like a cylinder. And, okay. um, and they're, they're laxatives. And mm. so they make you go to the bathroom a lot. So, but my mum was addicted to those. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I think that she used those as her, as a dietary supplement would, would mm-hmm. be my guess. So I don't know for certain, but I know that she lives on them like lollies and they can't be yeah. good Oh, no. No, it's not. So that kind of sets the stage for you growing up in this environment of course, our environments feel, for the most part, normal to us. You know, I mean, that's, that's, it's what we know. But it sets the stage for this environment that you grew up in that was very heavily colored by mental health struggles. Yeah, looking back now, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah of course, at the time. And, yeah. you know, one thing that was interesting, we, I, you know, you, you talk, you know, I have this pre-interview and and one of the things that you told my team was that you and your brother were very mischievous, but that you didn't get into trouble because you never got caught. And I thought it, it was thinking about that a lot. Like, you know, 
if no one's paying it, you know, you're getting into trouble, getting into trouble. Well, getting into trouble is really a function of getting caught. Yes. Right. Otherwise, otherwise you're just doing it. Correct. And and yep. if no one's paying attention, which you, it sounds to me like your parents were just really suffering and involved in their own suffering. Like they just couldn't, they had not healed from those things and didn't have the skills. And so you and your brother were out doing all these things, um, but you know, you didn't get in trouble because you didn't get caught. And so I think a lot of people that getting caught stops them from escalating, but you guys, you didn't, there was no governor on, on your ability to, you know, cause more and more mischief. Uh, there was, there was, I did get caught once. So. Oh, once. Okay. Okay. Yeah, one yeah. cut. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was a pretty bad one too. So I did get caught. So um, what, what did you get caught for? Um, well, I took a car when I was underage and I had a few drinks and um, so that, and I hit another car. And, oh, that'll do it. That'll do it. So um, I managed to get the car home, and um, but it was damaged. And um, so, you know, to this day, like um, even my mum and I still talk about it sometimes to this day because my dad vlogged me for probably an hour, and it was like serious abuse. Like, and I still to this day remember just how violent it was when um, when when they came home and discovered what had happened to the car. Like, I I got it flogged like relentlessly, like bruised and very, very badly beaten up. Do you have children now? Yep. Three. Three boys. Three boys. And, uh, you know, when you look back on that and, you know, that used to be something that was much more common. What do you think, you know, if we asked, if you we interviewed your dad and said, you know, what was your goal there? What was the goal there? Did, you know, do you think that that, did you think this was going to teach him a lesson? Did you think this was going to help him? What do you think he would tell, tell well, you? Well, we've actually had that discussion because we, we've had some very okay. coloured discussions, my father and I, over the years. And um, the, the two most telling points out of that were that one is that maybe he should have gone a bit harder on me. Wow. Yeah. And okay. the second one was like, um, I deserved it. So, which are kind of the same thing, right? In a sense, he's in his. Oh, sense, I guess so, I guess so, there's a little technical so he, difference. Yeah. So, so he fully justified what he did, and and in hindsight, wonders whether he should have done more. And uh, I guess the third point, he says, he turned out all right, so maybe it worked. Right. What do you think about that? You think you know, in the context of having little boys, what do I think about that? Okay, where where my thoughts were going then was completely different. Yeah, you, know, you just don't touch your kids. Period. You have to find other ways. Even when they get up your nose as far as they possibly can, you can't touch them. There's other ways, 100% other ways. Because it's damaging. You you as the person who re- were, you were on the receiving end of that beating and and I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm assuming that that did not, you did not feel like you were supported and learning a lesson. Like you, that was, that was, it sounds like that was your dad's anger Hundred percent coming yeah. out, yeah, hundred percent, and, and not teaching you something. Yeah, yeah, correct. He was just angry within himself, and I became the victim that night for sure. Because at the end of the day, it's a car. Right. At the yeah. end of the day, it's a car. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a really. I think it, the reason I'm just kind of stopping on it is that I hear a lot of discussion around. Well, it's normal. My dad or my mom, whatever, was hitting me because I did something wrong. I deserved it. You know, I tur- you know, you turned out okay. A lot of I hear a lot of talk about children being hit 
you know, and I mean, really hit, um, as, as kids, as punishment. And a lot of people justify that because that's what they're used to. And they justify, you know, well, my parents meant well, which I do think many of them do, but I just wanted to stop on that because I think it's important for people to understand that if you, you know, that when you are beating your child, even if they did something wrong, that's about you. And it's, it's, it's not about your kid. Like you are, you are, you know, that's an act of violence against your kid and it, it is not useful in the long term. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It changed everything from day one, you know, from the day one moving forward, everything changed completely. Wow. How yeah. old were you? 14, I think. So you, um, but the part of the you, conversation was, sorry, sorry, actually was that. No, no, please. Is that you continue to do it and, and then it, not, it doesn't stop unless you get caught. Well, I'd already been doing it for ages. Right. So it was just another Saturday night for me to go for, go for a joyride. But this, right. time, I, this time I'd had beers. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm. Not many. Did, you do, it af- did no. you do it after that? No, did not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> I, have, I have a million funny stories and um so so that technically yes but i was <laughs> but, but I, was, I was i was legally able i was legally allowed to drive okay so I that's a great license. technicality yeah so i was allowed to drive but my parents okay. had, my parents had gone away for a weekend and so we decided that we'd take my dad's car for a drive down the coast for a couple of days and, and an incident happened down there and his car got damaged. So, um, did you fix and, it? Uh, the people who damaged it did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Living on the edge. I a love little, it. A bit. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you before. No, no, thank you. So, you know, the next piece, you have this incident, a traumatic incident happened at the age of 18 and, you know, I really related to the experience that you had a little bit different. Uh, mine was a, a a baby who drowned next door to my house, and I was the first responder on the scene. And you had a very similar experience. And um, I think I, I just, when I was reading about what happened, I really related to the feelings that you had. And uh, I, I just wanted you to tell us a bit about that story and and that the effect that that had on you. It probably, uh, it had two effects. The, the longest term effect that it had on me actually was that my brother was with me at the time and just wouldn't participate. So it probably had the greatest amount of effect on me where I just lost complete respect for him that here I was trying to like save a person's life and my brother didn't want to get his hands dirty, so to speak. And so... Do you want to, um, do you want to tell a little bit about what happened for, the, you know, Explain the the event sure, for context. Sure. So okay, um, so we were it was say midnight, give or take, and um, we were both driving home with separate vehicles um, and and nearly home. And the road we were on was a long a long straight road, and um, there was virtually no cars on the road. And say two hundred meters ahead of us, perhaps um, a car in front of us um, veered off to the right and drove straight through a supermarket, a shopping centre window. And came out the other side on the corner, and um, so apart from the damage to the supermarket, the guy's car caught fire, and so he burned to death. Unfortunately, the, the driver, but we managed to get him out of the car, and another a, another car um, soon stopped past and was helping me get the person. We got him out of the car and, and commenced CPR, and the other person uh, happened to be a doctor as well, which was 
seemed pretty good timing at the time, but the, the, the fellow still passed away. And so I remember the things that still, um, I guess I'm, I'm pretty passionate about today a bit in some ways is that um, first responders want to know the updates. How did the person go? How did this turn out? And, and I still feel like, generally speaking, that's still a pretty average process for people who may not be retained as a first responder. If you're an ambulance person, you're probably going to find out through work and however the systems are. But if you're a if you're a civilian and you're involved in an incident like this, is usually you don't find out anything until you read about it in the paper. And so I remember I remembered sort of like you know wondering and worrying, you know, because I don't know who the person was. There's no hospital that I could ring to find out what happened. I have no clue what his name was. So in the end, it's in the paper, and you find out that he died. But you know, so that sort of that was like a slow cook, or a, no puns, you know, like a slow thing to happen because I didn't find out an hour later. I didn't find out for maybe three right. days. So yeah. you pull him, you pull him out of the car, and he's already been burning. Yeah, he's and, already charred, and burned bad. Yeah. And you guys did CPR on him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, then, yeah, then, I was the, performing CPR on a face that was melted and awful. Yeah. Yeah. And then did the the ambulance come pick him up, or had you know how yeah. did that? Yeah, yeah. There was, there was people everywhere in a short period of time. Yes. Yeah, but there was two responders, myself and the other fellow. And your brother, so he pulled up. Was he out of the car? Yep, yep, and, and stood and there he and watched. Was, yeah. yeah, so he was obviously having his own situation at the time, right? But, you know, but right. you know, at that particular time, and, so, and and for a while afterwards, I judged him pretty harshly that he couldn't bring himself um, to participate. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up wanting to know after the fact because that was my experience as well, and and I was. I was performing CPR on the, on the baby and, you know, toddler and, uh, and he, he ended up dying days later as well. And I was very like, I couldn't sleep. I I was constantly like, what's happening? Wanted updates, you know, really just, I don't know, there's you, the moment you're involved in something like that, all of the, all of your senses are heightened. I mean, it's a very, very intense experience. And, you and I, it sounds like we had a very similar experience where we just, we happened to be there at the right time. We did the CPR and then someone else took them. They were gone and we're kind of left with like everything we saw and the intensity yeah. and the adrenaline. I've never had so much adrenaline in my body ever in my life. It's, it's a, it's, it's a really like very specific experience. And it sounds like it made a big difference, especially on your relationship with your brother. Yes. Yeah. See, I had, I had a second incident um, that happened as well. And I'd say if I had to look back in the time frame, it would have been maybe seven or eight years later. And um, I was uh, working in a place called Tasmania in Australia. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I was driving at the time. Uh, I had a part-time job and I was driving a, a bit a forklift or a fork truck, if you know what that is. Mm-hmm. Forklift. Yeah, yeah forklift. Yep. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, so uh, the one that I was driving was um, a huge one like that, that lifts shipping containers and about maybe three doors down in the same street, um, there was a scrap metal yard and um, a fellow um, came rushing uh, into my workplace and, and, and was banging on the window of the, of the forklift for me to come and help him straight away and that um, a person had been trapped. And so oh, no. they, and they needed the, their, their forklift was too small to lift the weight off the person. 
The one you were driving was too small. No, the one they had was too small. Oh, oh. So they've yours come to, was they've, the right they've, they've come to ask for mine because it's it's got a greater lifting capacity. But also uh, with a greater lifting capacity means that the fork's thicker at the end. It's not like a knife. It's like, you know, it's two inches thick sort of thing. So it's not, it's not a delicate piece of machinery, which was what was required. So I raced down there in the forklift. And then when I got there, so um, this person was using um, like oxy, like gas cutting equipment to, to cut up steel. And um, they were pulling apart some huge piece of machinery. And for whatever, for whatever crazy reason, the person popped his head underneath to have a look as to why what he was working on hadn't succeeded so far. So this was like a huge cog that was, say, four or five foot wide and on a steel shaft, but he was trying to get it to drop. And so he popped his head under to have a quick look to see how much more there was to go, and it dropped. So it pinned him in the head, by the head. This, this Didn't thing his weighed. head explode? Yes, it did, yeah. So this thing was probably about five tonnes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's he, that's it. He's done. Yeah, 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 game over. So the owner or who person who came and got me was freaking out and going, get it off, get it off, get it off. You know, but it's just like he was, yeah. done. He was done, you know. And yeah. so, so all you could see was from his neck down was hanging out. And um, so we got the thing off. But, you know, he's, you could have, unfortunately, you could have put his head in, a, in an envelope. And it was like, yeah. so the experience, so the reason why I was just saying that, so the experience from that is to the day I can still smell the incident and I can mm. still see the incident. But I didn't have any of that, what we talked about before, knowing did he live or didn't he live. It was like he was dead. <laughs> well, yeah, clearly, but you know, yeah. so, it's, so it's an interesting. I've, 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 I feel like I probably, I probably processed that was a far, in some ways, that was a far more graphic situation that I had to attend. But I felt like I processed it a bit better, maybe because it was the second time, or because I knew that there was, there was, there was a finality there and then. Right, you knew that. I think it's, I think it's, uh, if I had to guess, my experience is that you knew that there was nothing you could do to impact the situation to change the outcome. Like when you're performing CPR on somebody, you're, and you're hopeful. You're hopeful. There's still a possibility. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You, you're like, please let what I'm doing be helpful. Please. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, and so I think that that's the diff, like, that's the yeah. feeling. Right. And then, and then it's not helpful and you wonder if you did it right yeah. or you did enough. Like yeah. that was, you know, oh my God, did, maybe I didn't do it hard enough. That was, you know, maybe, maybe I didn't uh, blow hard enough or, you know, whatever. Like you just start to yeah. go over the incident in your head. Whereas yeah. with the one, the, with the forklift, there's nothing you could have done. Yeah, correct. Correct. Have you been diagnosed with PTSD? Is that, with, you know, is Never. that PTSD? No, I'm a, um, I, I only go to the doctor when I'm, I guess, physically injured. I probably, having said that, it's like, you're meant to go when you're mentally injured too. But, um. I go when I'm physically injured. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's it, period. You know, what's interesting about that is that if you did a brain scan, your brain would show up. Um, if they can with, find if, it. <laughs> yes, if they can find assuming. it. Your, yes, assuming they can find it, if they did a brain scan, PTSD shows up in your brain as a as like blunt force trauma to your head. Like you can, it actually yeah, looks sure, the same. I, I'm sure it's there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's been so many of those types of things that have happened with me over the years that I'm sure that it'll be there. 
So you, you know, you, this, this incident happens and then you find out your wife is having an affair and this sends you into a mental health downward spiral. Yes. Yep. Why do you think it was, it was, do you think it was, um, like the accumulation of things or what about this really just was the, the, the thing that sent you down? Because it was in black and white. It was in writing, literally. So the transcript being sent to my phone um, was long and detailed. Mm. And so I sort of, I look back on that now and think that, that someone wanted me to see that mm. because you get, you know, I get pop-ups on my phone all day long from different things to do with internet purchases and whatever, whatever. And um, that's the first and only time that there's ever been detail included with the transaction that came to my phone. So, you know, I'd had those same transactions constantly before over the years for different varying, right. for varying amounts that she'd spoken to online psychics and wherever they were in the world. And I just saw the amount and shrugged it and went, oh, well, if it's helping her feel better, that's great. So I never, I never ever knew the content ever. I just assumed that, you know, they're having a private conversation and hopefully it's all good. So what was the dark place that you went to from this, from this affair? I guess it was a confirmation, Ashley that some of my suspicions and I think what I, what I felt anyway was that when you're going through that type of thing is often the other person makes you feel like you're a loony. Yep. Gaslighting. Yeah. It's just like, no, nah, you're crazy. You're just, you're, you're paranoid. You're, you're suspicious. You're all of these, all of these sorts of things. And then after it happens, it's just like, wow, well, was right all this time. So then yeah. you start to second guess, you know, other things and like how far back and was that the first or not the first and so right it's a car wreck inside your head it really is and so when it got to that point i've just like gone you know what i can't i don't know if i can do this anymore i don't know if i want to fight this i just it's, it's just going to be too difficult and so i started to plan uh, an exit and, and and I guess, you know, they want, they're some of the things that I'm good at is planning stuff. And, and if you want something done, give it to me. It's going to get done. No matter what, I'll have a crack at getting whatever it is done, done. So now I'm like going, well, I'm pretty capable of this. I had it all figured out that I'd be able to just, because I was in a foreign country and they're driving with different rules, that I'd be able to make it look like I, I stepped onto the road and it was just a dumb tourist accident. So I had all of that sort of worked out, okay? This is a no, this is a no contest. It'll be just easy. I'll just walk in front of a taxi and it's, it's game over. Right. Yeah. And what? And and then you decided not to do that. Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I had a lot of anger, and um, I but I, but I also had I had a lot of rational thoughts also coming through my head. Yeah. And then I started to feel sorry for the taxi driver. Right. Right. So like, think it through. That's yeah. Yeah. Correct. So I'm like, no, oh, there's a reason not to. It's like, how unfair is that? A taxi driver so then I'm like going where else you know and I, and I couldn't I couldn't quite come up with a better plan other than you know there's no access where I was to weapons or anything like that you know that you could go and do something and I wasn't thinking along those lines I needed something more immediate and that I didn't do it to myself so to speak uh, so so that part came up and and it wasn't um, that long actually that we'd moved into a new home and 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 then the home that I'd built was like a forever home in my mind. Mm, it's like this is going to stay right. in the family for for a hundred years, and the type of house that I built that'll still be standing in a hundred years. So then I started to 
have all those other thoughts about the confirmations of um, that I was the crackpot and that I'd been suspicious, then I started to think, like, some guy's going to move into my house. It might be that guy that's mentioned in the text messages is that, that he, he could end up in my house. And I'm like, there's no way some bloke is going to meet my ex and take on my great house and my kids. But, so that became a really powerful uh, will to live now. So it, changed, it was like a light switch went on. I'm like going, it was even more so than, yeah, it was, yeah, it was just, it was just a big switch, light switch moment, I guess you'd say. Because you know, at, at the time, all I was concerned about was that it looked like that I died with dignity so that my kids would never, ever know what had actually happened is like, and then she would never have known that that text had arrived to my phone either. Like, no, it would just be a secret that you take to the grave, so to speak. And my kids wow. would just think dad was a hero and was away working and this happened. What an unfortunate accident. And no, right. one, no one else would need to know that it was deliberate because that would also break my mum to pieces. Yeah. So they, be all, they all started to become my one reasons. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with the cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. 100% of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, Matcha Maiden Organic Matcha Powder, love me some green tea, Golden Grind Turmeric Latte Blend, and Prana Chai Original Blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The turmeric latte blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The prana chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with the cause. So again, go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. You know, it's interesting as I think that you know, you had all of the pressures when you're, when you're talking about stepping in front of the taxi, you're talking about all of that turned inward. And, and when you talked about, you know, not letting this person move into your forever home and and your kids and, you know, it's the motivation is, is outward and the anger is outward, right? It's not, you know, it goes from, goes from self-harm to, you know, anger outside of yourself. And in some ways that's, that's much better, right. Than than turning it inward is I'm, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to, this is, you know, like you said, yeah. your one reason. So, you know, I think that one thing that I think is unique to your story is that, you know, the thoughts of suicide are something that continue to, that you continue to struggle with. Not, it wasn't just a one-time thing. And you have this, this great book, this, this toolkit for, you know, how to deal with, with suicidal ideation. And I, what I think is 
interesting and what, what I want to know more about is, you know, we all have thoughts that comfort us, right? Like we return to thoughts that comfort us, that solve whatever problem we have, right? If we we return to the thought of, I want to use drugs and alcohol, for mm-hmm. example, like if I return to that, that's because there's something comforting for me about yes. drugs and alcohol, right? Because yep. when when my life gets too stressful, you know, and I have that using thought, that's, that's because it relieves me of my responsibilities. Yep. For you, when life has gotten intense, you've had you've continued to struggle with suicidal ideation. What is it about coming back to that same thought of suicide that brings you comfort in those moments when it feels like too much? I keep finding a reason and and it happens over and over, like constantly. It's, it's, it's sort of, I feel like it's, it's ever present and, and for the, for the greater part of a day or a week or a month, it's dormant. But it's just there waiting. And um, when I get into those sort of um, spaces, which is too often, I just find ways to get back out. And and it's usually just any old reason. It doesn't matter what it is. And it can be different. It could be like, oh, hang on, my football team's playing next Saturday and they might win. I want to find out if they win, you know, because it's a <laughs> final. So, right. so I've found that it's often any number of random reasons, but one's enough to get you back out again and get you past that that thing. And I know I sort of relate things to like a, a cyclone or a huge storm. And, you know, when when you're in that that peak period, it's the eye of the storm. And you know, and I know now that the storm passes. So it's in that that, that half an hour or that ten minutes or that one hour that I just have to know that the clock's ticking still and that it will pass. And so in that time I have to get I have to find that reason. Otherwise, that becomes the crazy hour where it's where it's it's final and there's no coming back. What is it like being in the eye of the storm in this case? What are the thoughts? It, it all just feels too hard. And mm. and 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 why what why would I want to? And, and and in some ways, you sort of it's almost like you're having an argument with yourself. Where I go, mm-hmm. oh no, I'm 54. I've achieved heaps. My kids are this age. They're not going to be left broke. I've done that. I've seen the world. I've achieved all these other bits and pieces. Like, you know, checking out now isn't such a bad thing. Like, it's not like there's things that are on my list to do that I'm craving to do. So, mm. you know, there's a whole left side of your brain justifying all of this. And then there's the, the, the right side of the brain arguing. There's your football team playing on Saturday. Don't you want to know who wins? Right, right. And it doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. It reminds me a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of using drugs and alcohol or, you know, because you're, what you're really wanting to do is relief. What you really want is relief from the pressure. You want the, you know, let the lid off the pressure. And, and for you, for, for me, it's, you know, drugs and alcohol for you, it, it is this idea of not being alive anymore, like ending it, but it's the same feeling it's the same like i just need the relief i need the i need yeah, to yeah, let yeah. the pressure up. yeah correct and and the solution is the same which is this will pass this feeling will pass and yeah. oh like, and going oh i'm oh i must really need relief identifying what it is but the argument's still going and then finding i just need one reason to get to the next 
yes. thing. Like it, it doesn't matter why I stay sober that day. It doesn't yeah. matter because in a year from now, when I'm still sober, I won't look back and go, Oh, on March, blah, blah, blah. I stayed sober for some stupid reason. Yeah. It won't matter because you just, you know, you stayed alive and I, you stayed alive and I stayed sober, but your, your suicidal ideation is your, is your addictive pattern is your addictive thought. Yeah, completely. Yeah. 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 It's relentless. Yeah. And do you ever worry that it's going to take over you? Do you ever worry like, Oh my God, I, it's so strong that I may do it without my own permission. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the sort of life that I've had actually is like, you know, for all the good things, there's been a, a huge amount of adversity over the years. And mm-hmm. I guess, you know, and that's probably in some ways that would tie into like what you talked about before the PTSD is I've had so many different situations over the years that in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm battle hardened as well because mm-hmm. some of these big things might come to a person one time only in their life and it's just, it's enough to tip them over. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hardened sports person, so to speak, is like, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm stress fit is that so many different things have come my way and that just thickens your skin a bit and makes you look at things a bit different. You know, last year um, in the volunteer organisation that, that I've been with for half of my life, like I was completely bullied by two different people that didn't want me to be a part of the organisation because I knew, I knew that they were full of shit and they didn't want me around. But, you know, they, they had, uh, you know, narcissistic personalities and they did everything they could um, to get rid of me, including... You know, when I went to one of the persons and said, listen, you're a GP and you should know better than this. And it didn't change. Nothing changed. Like it doesn't matter whether you're a, a sports person or a doctor or a scientist or whoever. If you're a narcissist, you're a narcissist. It's, it's not, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm a doctor. I better not be. It's just like it's, it's beyond that. So I think in some ways some of the um, exposures to things that I've had over the years have really hardened me up. Do you, you know, you, you, in our, the beginning of our talk, you said that, you know, your dad's calls regularly talking about ending his life and that your mother is still self-harming. Does, does that, I mean, that's, that's, that to me would weigh heavily on, that would, that would cause my recovery to wobble, um, to be inundated with people I love who were still struggling so deeply it would also reflect for me what I might end up like. Like it would be a fear of like, you know, if, if, if I'm, if I'm struggling with this now, is this what it looks like in 30 years kind of deal? Does that, do any of those thoughts come to you? Absolutely. That's, um, I'm, I, I like that you, you're aware of those sorts of things. So I guess from a really, really early day, I've been, I'll, I'll, I'll just digress for a split second as part of this is whenever I was younger, say 20 or whatever it might have been, and even even when I was married, um, the, t- the single worst thing that anyone could say to me who I loved was that you're just like your father. And I've lived my life to be anything but him. And so to hear that come from two people that I really love, which was one of them was my mum and one of them was my ex-wife, was just like you, you, you couldn't say anything worse to me because I have right. no respect for him whatsoever. I have love for him, but I have zero respect to this day for him as a as a person. And so, I'm I'm actively aware that I do not want to have 
the last 20 years of my life, even remotely like my father's. And, mm. and I, don't, I, I just can't see that happening. And, and his, his life is terrible by choice. Right, right. Yeah, all of his own doing and all of his, his life is just terrible and I fully could see why he'd want to check out, but it's still by choice. Right, yeah. right. What does your family think about your book, Just One Reason? Tell me about the book and, and what your family thinks about that because that had to open their eyes to how much you think about this. My mum and I have had some pretty big conversations about things. Um, about the book, um, probably um, when my mum got given the first draft and she said to me straight away after she'd read it, she said, I wish that this had been around when she was a kid. Mm. So I sort of, I felt like everything was validated in a, like in an instant. Yeah. But it's just like, here's yeah. my mum's 77 and she's going, she's instantly taking herself back through the book to a 15 year old yeah. and wishing that she'd had a tool like yeah. that. So in an instant, I knew the book's good. I was like, yeah. my confidence went through the roof to hear that sort of compliment from my mum. And it wasn't like, you know, mums just love anything to do with their kids. It's like it was was much more than that. Um, My boys haven't really discussed the contents of the book with me. What I have noticed the most is that, like, they're they're really actively aware of what mental health is now. And Mm -hmm. and I, I can already feel and see that the impact to them is that they're, they're more aware and more caring of others um, around mm. them in their either whether that's in their um, at work or within their friendships. I feel like it's sort of it's opened their eyes a bit more, and it's been fantastic um, to watch that going on and seeing that there's a whole other layer to my kids where they've now got this um, awareness of, of, of around them as opposed to just ignoring it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. That, so that's been um, that's been pretty good to witness that, especially from my youngest son, who's to who's seventeen. Just you know, we now leave at my house here. Um, I've got a, a tray that sits on it over near the fireplace, and it just says free copies. And so there's always ten or twelve copies of my book sitting there, so that if we get visitors or I don't want anyone to feel guilty to take a book, and I don't want them to have to ask. But the books keep disappearing. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, wow, they just they go. And it's like, I don't know where they go. I don't ask. They just go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, that's pretty cool. And um, I like, I like that. I like that too. And and it's it's a toolkit for people who are struggling with suicidal ideation. Can you tell me a little bit about you know a little bit about that? Um, so within within the toolkit, so the book. Firstly, the book, it's my view that people have to buy in to um, what I'm offering them as a solution potentially within the book. And the way for me, the best way is for me to tell my story. And it's, and mm-hmm. it's not long because it's only a small book, but there's enough in there to go, this person's been where I've been or mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So I guess people know straight away that there's, there's no BS and, and I announce in the book that, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, I'm not medically trained in any capacity. This is just my street smart way of how I deal with things. So then, then the book steps you through a series of questions that really, really stop you. And so some of those questions are, are really simple, but, you know, are profound at the same time. And I put a huge amount of work into the questions and, and workshop them and, and, and tested them on other people to get people's responses. So some of the 
questions in there, for example, is just like, what am I grateful for today? Just to let people, and this is like six lines. It's only a small book. This is like, write something, anything you want down in there. So there's like that type of question in there. Then there's other things. It's like, um, after I die, what do I want to happen? And then there's other questions. It's like, when I die, what happens? And it's sort of along that type of theme to make people stop and think and go like, you know, who don't I want to hurt out of all of this? You know, what are the, what are the consequences? And so in, through the book, it'll step you through questions if you're up to answer them, which can just stop you in your thoughts. And, and you only need to stop your thought for five minutes and, and, and just change tracks like on a record. This is like it. If, you, if your head's going, I've had enough, I've had enough, I've had enough, you just need to lift the needle and change tracks. And so the questions help you change tracks. And there's a series of them through the book that can do that. And, you, and they're not in order. So even whilst I've put them in order, it's up for the reader to decide. They might not be able to answer the first two questions, but they can answer question six. But right. it's just it's right. that whole process of just life's not that bad, you know, like maybe there is something that you're grateful for. And then, you know, ultimately it leads you to list some reasons um, that you do want to live for. And it doesn't matter what those reasons are. It could be you've got a fantastic car and I don't want my brother to get it or I don't want my sister to get it or I don't want <laughs> so-and-so to get it or who's going to look after my dog after I go. It's like it's just to get your thinking. It's just like do you realise that if you do die, what's going to happen to your dog? Where's he going? You know, what happens to your money or whatever the case is? So there's things like that in there just to try and stop you and break the cycle of what's happening with that, that, that track that's playing in your head. You go, I've had enough, I've had enough, and it works. It takes a minute. So I, I assume that you've had, um, you've probably had some pretty emotional responses. Have you had people tell you about how they've used it and, and have some pretty moving experiences with it? Endless. Amazing. Probably, um, yeah, I have. Yeah, so lots. Yeah, lots would be an understatement. Some of the more significant ones that come to mind are like um, a mum wrote to me. And her daughter, they, they already had my book. And um, so the daughter had already, um, I think, had three or four uh, failed attempts. And so another failed attempt had happened. And the, the girl was in hospital now and the mum was by her bedside and um, but didn't have the book. And so she, the mum reached out to me and said, I think the book was working, but she's here again. Um, do you think you could send another one to the hospital directly and put a note in it. So I did. So I, I wrote a note in the book um, to the to the person. And um, so the mum contacted me like two weeks later. And it was just, and I'm like a favourite person now. And it's like, you know, her daughter's turned a corner. The daughter's reached out to me and written a really long letter, thanked me and told me a bit more about what's happening for her and, and other things. And, and now... You know, it's morphed into part of what I'm planning to do now is I'm going to do a printed newspaper um, full of lived experience stories. And uh, the girl always wanted to be a writer. So now she's going to be putting an article into the paper. So um, some of those things are so um, so awesome. And then in in Australia, we have an organisation that's volunteer. It's called the Salvation Army. I'm not sure if you've We have, yes. So they buy my book regularly. And 
to this a person who was doing it tough and so a book was was given to them by the Salvation Army and then um, at some point in time just recently even they were at the person's house and the book was next to their bed and the person showed them the book that they'd written six reasons um, in there so they shared that story with me by email about that sort of thing that they were pretty pleased so those sorts of things are, are, are pretty frequent um, now with the book. Which, uh, I love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. That must be so rewarding and so helpful in this journey of knowing that your experience can be so helpful, like truly life-changing for people. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's a lady um, in another part of Australia and she's got a fish and chip shop, which is like a takeaway food bar let's say. Mm-hmm. And so uh, her son suicided um, two years ago at the age of 22. And so she runs her business still and she discovered my book and has since um, set up an area on her shop counter where she's got a poster and a letter written. It's all like stuck to the counter and she's got a pile of books there and says, just if you're struggling, please help yourself and take a book. And um, mm. so she's got that set up in her shop and sent me photos. And I think to date, She's bought 45 books and so that's just like her, her silent sort of way to help her, her local community mm-hmm. is just to go, if you're struggling, please take one of these. It might help. And, and she's written to me a couple of times, um, the lady, and, and to this day she said not one's ever been stolen. Like it's, they've gone to where they need to go. And she's yeah. like, and people ask her, aren't you worried that they're going to get stolen? Like other customers thinking that she's crazy to have a pile of brand new books just sitting there saying, help yourself. But I think when a person thinks that someone's going to take 10, they're probably thinking that they might take 10. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's just incredible. That's, it's an incredible thing. And it's such a way, you know, there's something so healing about the process you're describing of writing it out, workshopping it, like you're doing your work through all of this, while all of this is going on, getting these stories, having the opportunity, hearing about this, that, you know, that that's healing you from the inside out as well. And I would imagine that it is, you know, if you needed just one reason that you have all of these stories that you get from your book could, could be your one reason any day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, and it's probably, been if you know from a very early stage is that I think I've got that rescuer type mm. personality but I think that's mm-hmm. my addiction I think I feel that's my addiction mm-hmm. is that I'm always rescuing situations and always rescuing people and might be a business that needs rescuing it's like but I feel like I've been a rescuer type personality and I'm addicted to that so I feel um, with my book that now I can rescue on scale if that makes sense yep it's like without without expending your energy yeah correct it's just like you know my my sort of mind and part of my other addictions are that i don't do one do a hundred or why Mm -hmm. why would you do a hundred when you can do a thousand and Mm -hmm. so that's clearly an addiction of mine it's like Mm -hmm. in in everything that i do is maximized Mm -hmm. so i feel now you know the book was just another another branch of yeah. that is this is like why why spend my life helping one person when I can help a million I love it and I, and yeah, I, and I think, I think that's going to happen like there's so many signs that are coming through to me now that it's just 
it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, whether it's three years or 10 years or 20 years, at some point in time, my book's going to hit a million, a million people for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just convinced the signs are, are just there. Like, you know, I've got like 99.9% positive feedback that comes from people and it's like this hasn't been anything shitty that's come back and the stories are just nonstop of how good and how many people have helped and people even close to me that I'm surprised about is and, and mm. na- neighbours and friends have, have mm. come and found me and said there's a lady down the road that I've just found out that their daughter's got anorexia and the daughter's struggling but the mum's actually struggling. Do you think I could give the mum a book? And so, mm-hmm. and I'm constantly giving books away for free, like nonstop. And um, those sorts of things continue to find me that people seek me out and go, is it cool if I, go, if I can grab a book off you or they buy a book for those sorts of reasons? It's it's endless. It's really, really cool. I always say um, that I'm going to use whether I make the decision to or not, because I have the compulsive personality. And so the question is whether or not I want a choice in what I'm going to use. So if I have a choice in what I'm going to use, maybe I'm going to uh, give back. Maybe I'm going to do too much yoga. Maybe I'm going to, you know, or whatever. Like I'm going to, I can direct that intensity towards things that are positive in my life. But if I, you know, if I don't participate, that's when the intensity gets directed towards instant gratification things. And so it's about, you know, channeling that energy that we have that isn't going to go anywhere. I mean, that energy is, it's, it's part of who we are, but if we channel it, right, if we channel it in the right direction, that's the goal, that's where the healing happens. And I think, you know, you're saying like, oh, the rescuing is, is an addiction. Well, it makes you feel good. It helps other people and it helps you to be entrenched in a healing community and all of those things that's directing that energy in the right, the right way. And if that's the difference, right, if, if your addiction is helping people, then so be it, right? Like that's, that's a, that's a good outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope I hope that um you know I I want this to reach um and your American audience um of the million that are going to be reading your book and for people to go out and and read just one reason and have it on hand and I want that to be a big piece you know it, come here to America are you are you talking to people in America about this Yes a, li- a little bit um I got approached by a major publisher in America who wanted to take um, my book uh, soon after it was released, but they wanted to change the format of it. And so um, I just stood my ground and said, it's not just the content of the book here, it's an entire strategy. And so they wanted to change the size of the book to a novel size and they wanted it to be paperback. And so that's already breaking the tool. It's like this thing is designed to be robust. It's in a hardcover, it fits in your pocket and um, and it's small. It's less like you can't. It's just like it's otherwise you're just putting what I'm saying just into another novel that's going to be on a shelf somewhere. And I don't want that. I want this to be a book that lasts for five or 10 years. You buy a novel if you chuck it in the seat of your car and then it is in your briefcase or your work toolbox or wherever it's going to be, the book's going to deteriorate quickly. And, and you know, you can nearly leave my book out in, in some rain and it's probably going yeah. to still function as to do what it's meant to do, which is to keep you alive. And you won't be chucking it in the bin because it got damaged. So, right, so there was right. that there was that conversation, Ashley. And then um, I, I received um, an unsolicited letter, which was pretty remarkable. Someone in Canada 
is a is a first responder is a major mm. fan of my book and i don't know how all of the dots get connected and stuff but um out of the blue i got an unsolicited letter from a really high ranking um police person in the united states who mm. um is a professor in something or other and um and wrote to me and just said i've received a copy of your book and i think that this needs to be in the pocket of every new recruit every new graduate that comes out of the academy mm. and i'm like hmm, that's pretty cool like that'd be that'd be a nice feather in your cap so i've never actually escalated that to who actually puts the order in on behalf of the police department you know um because yeah. I'm, I'm not on the ground if probably if uh COVID hadn't have hit i might have come to america already to try and promote um promote my book but as it stands today it's still with the, with, with the distance and one selling one copy is expensive because of the postage yeah. so, right 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 but at some point in time i'll have that facilitated where i can send a thousand copies to one location and i can distribute it for me for sure yeah that would be great yeah that's what needs to happen so where can people find you on my website just one reason just one reason dot is it uh, dot, dot com? com yeah dot com dot au yes dot com dot au okay awesome so justonereason.com.au and you're working on, can we buy it on Amazon? That's nearly finished. We started that process, I think, four or five days ago. And so okay. even um, the Amazon process, they want to do print on demand. And so right. we've got to actually send stock over to America so that they can fulfill from over there because we yeah. actually want them to buy this book, not a print on demand book. So yeah, it's right. it's going to be on Amazon soon. Uh, have you heard of Goodreads? Do you have that in America? Oh, I love Goodreads. Wow, well, I should, love Goodreads. You should see the the ratings on Goodreads for my book. It's it's um it's pretty cool. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'll check that out. I'll check that out. And and then you're working on your second book. Yes. Well, well, I guess you'd say yes. Like it's it's a, a lot of the chapters are written, and some of the um the stories are written, and um everything I do sits in my phone in my notepad. So <laughs> I'm like a. a, a Two thumbs type you better person. back that up yeah so um <laughs> so so that so that yeah so the answer is uh yes so um the, the next book is called um the product of divorce and i'm okay. gonna i'm gonna do it in the same the same size and format um i just think in today's society more than ever people need five minute solutions and mm-hmm. um and i feel if you can get something out of five or ten minutes you have a chance to use it if it takes you or the energy in the world to try and get past the first three pages with a of a novel or a, a big hardbound copy of something it's it's already defeating the purpose because five percent of the population might try it that way and right. you know generally everyone's busy so we need the lazy way so um <laughs> so so the you know, so the product of divorce i observe that constantly amongst my own kids and whenever i see things that aren't going well for kids around me and, and other areas that I, or I hear a story, I just go, this is the product of divorce. If a kid's off the rails or something's not going well for them at school, it's just like you don't have to scratch the surface bar to realise that these are all things that are occurring because the parents went through a divorce and and, uh, and a lot of parents I view, I believe, sorry, um, they try to self-justify and become salespeople to themselves that this is going to be okay, it's for the best and the kids will be fine. It's like, no, that, that may well be the case and sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. However, the kids aren't fine. You just hope that they are, but they're not. They're just not. You know, there's 
a million stories. It's a whole other podcast all again, but that's what um, book number two will be about because I continually watch that even, you know, today here in Australia is um, my 17-year-old is going to like a university for a walk-around tour just to have a look at see what he might do when he finishes school. And so this is he'd been telling me that he's probably got this planned and an interview's coming up. And, and so my son lives with me, not with his mum. And so I said to him, so Thursday, do you want me to plan that? We'll go down. He's like, yep, yep, yep. That all sounds pretty cool. So then last night he says, oh, mum wants to go. I go, oh, okay, no worries. And sort of, you know, what does that look like? It's like, well, you won't be coming, so to speak. So whilst those sorts of things happen, I already know now that that's already affecting his mental health and he's 17 because now he's mm-hmm. already going, fuck, sorry. Oh, you're fine. We, yeah. we swear. Uh, he's already having to have the, the stress of how does he tell, how does he break that news to dad? He knows that dad will just cop it sweet and I'd rather not have the stress on him or on myself and stand my ground mm-hmm. and go, hang on, we had this plan for a week. Um, I just go, you know what, life goes on. And so I, I process it that in my own way. But I look at that already and go, there's another product of divorce of kid who wants to be proud and go and see what his new university might look like. We'd love to go with both of his parents. Right. But now one's gone and put a wedge in there and taken the driver's seat, so to speak. And, you know, for the last week we're going, oh, that's cool, looking forward to it. And all of a sudden, bang, it's over. He's now got to tell his dad, sorry, mum's taking me and probably that means you're not coming. So that's the product of divorce and that means trauma. Yeah, yeah, destabilization. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And how shitty is that? Like that's just incredible to put that on your 17-year-old. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard. I, I try not to have too much, I try not to judge it because, you know, I've never, I haven't been there, but uh, my parents are both, the product of divorce and uh, they, I mean, we are still experiencing, we are still, we still, there are still effects on me and my children, my, my grandparents, great grandchildren as a result of uh, the divorce. One is funny, which is that my, my father's father, my grandfather, paternal grandfather married a woman who we didn't end up calling, like we call her by her first name. And so, and, and my grandfather passed away and I, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of relationships with grandparents, just a couple of them. Now I had seven. So now that's just a couple. And so I was spending time with her and I call, I, I refer to her as the, the great grandmother, but she, but I call her by her first name and we're out in public and sometimes be like, Oh, how do you know? We'll get introduced and, and she'll say, Oh, this is, you know, this is so-and-so's granddaughter. Like we are still jumping through hoops, trying to define, like how to define our relationship. We were asked in an Apple store and both of us just looked at each other, like not knowing what to say, like, how do we explain our relationship? And, and, uh, and I just, I laugh, like it's, I wasn't even alive when this stuff was going on. And my children still are like, they, I can't give them a straight answer about yeah. who she is or, you know, like what, what to call her. It's, it's, it's just the way, you know, it's, it, it has long-term effects, but I also don't want to be, you know, I, I know that it's a difficult, really painful decision. And sometimes it's not, you know, one of the people's decisions. So I try not to get into too much judgment about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and same. So when 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 all that happens, it won't be about the judgment. It'll be about you really need to think through the consequences to your own children because no matter what you do and how you handle it, there's going to be a tail that's long, mm-hmm. and it's going to yep. continue. And and it's yep. still and and here it is. There's a, um, so a, a book that I read a number of years ago um, was called Divorce Buster, and it talked all about that um, after you divorce, there's often more work required. Than there was leading up to the divorce is to try mm. and keep some form of a relationship on a on an even keel. Well, it's been wonderful having you on here and talking about this stuff. I think mental health is such a huge thing. And I know people really struggle with suicidal ideation, but they don't want to talk about it. And as you know, to that specifically, they don't want people to worry about them. And I think that your book, Just One Reason, is an incredible resource for people, especially, you know, it gives you a really clear, like, this is what you do right now. I love that, right? Like people don't need a long, you know, explanation when they're in the moment. They need a right now solution. And you're the perfect person to provide that because that's what you've been using. And still use. Unfortunately. It's still use. No, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I, you know, we all have our recovery and we're still in it. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Stuart. I really appreciate it. No worries. It's nice too. Thank you very much. I, I felt very comfortable. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.